Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Kate Lido. Kate is the principal and founder of Kate Lido Consulting, the vehicle through which she shares her 25 years of expertise in product management, organizational design, culture transformation, and personal development with the world. Her clients have included JP Morgan, the Financial Times, Comic Relief, and Yves Saint Laurent, among many more. Before founding her consulting practice, Kate was the head of product at Moo.com in London, where she built and led the product management and UX teams responsible for the business's e-commerce platform and premium physical product range. Kate also invested several years at Yahoo in Silicon Valley, where she was first a marketing manager and then the product lead of social search for the UK and the EU markets. A regular speaker, blogger, and author of a book worth its weight in gold, Hiring for Product EQ, Using Product EQ to Go Beyond Culture and Skills, Kate has a huge heart and mind for increasing the effectiveness of product organizations by giving product people the framing and tools they can use to improve the softer aspects of their practice. And now, beaming live from France to me right here in Auckland, New Zealand, I have the pleasure of welcoming Kate to this Brave UX conversation. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And thank you for such a, a, a lovely um, introduction. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it is wonderful to have you here, Kate. And I have to say, you don't sound very much like a European. As far as I can tell, you're an American, <laughs> no. possibly a Californian. Actually, no, I'm originally from Iowa. Ah. Um, but I went to, yeah, I know you would have never caught that one, I'm sure. I went to university in Northern California and worked there for a while before I moved to London with Yahoo a long, long time ago. And then just recently made a move um, from the UK to France. And Kate, um, I wanted to ask you about so that kind of, because I understand that you recently uh -huh. were, a, you're a freshly minted citizen of the UK. And I wondered if you cleared well, this with the queen, this move to France. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, she's been a bit busy lately. Um, <laughs> Family she hasn't dramas. been feeling great. So she kind of let, yeah, exactly. A lot's going on. Um, so I don't, I don't know if she's noticed yet, but you know, hopefully, hopefully she's going to let that one go. So does this mean that you're no longer having to force yourself to drink cups of tea? Yeah. Oh, that's a very good question because my partner, um, who's Welsh, drinks a lot of tea, a lot of Yorkshire tea in the house. And it's something I've always, I've tried to, I've really tried to like, and I just can't get into. Did they put it on the citizenship so, um, test? Was it, was it on the test? They should have, you know, you would have thought because, you know, every one thing I've learned living in the UK, I've lived in the UK for 15, 16 years before moving to France. And everybody has their specific way of drinking their tea, of course. So it would have been quite funny to actually have on the citizenship something very practical, like, how does your partner take his tea, <laughs> you know, and could you make it for us that way now, instead yeah. of some of the questions that I had to answer. 
<laughs> yeah, it sounds much more fun, much more practical, and probably probably would lead to a better yeah, result. Yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> Kate, I, I heard you say in the past when I was listening to something that you'd recorded that you started consulting after Moo mainly as a way to pay the bills, mm -hmm. but that it's developed yeah. naturally into something of its own volition. Are you happier consulting, you know, as a free agent than more happy than when you were employed? I am. I mean, personally, it works for me very well. I've been an independent consultant uh, for almost 11 years now. So it's something that I don't think I could ever go back to a full-time employment situation. That was my next um, question. And yeah, I don't think I could. <laughs> I tried it once and it just didn't work. <laughs> so no, I think I, I'm pretty much done for and a consultant for life. But yeah, I, I started just because I, I left Moo in 20, 2011 and was going to start my own startup because that's what everybody was doing in London at the time. And I needed something to help me pay the bills while I figured out what it was and how I was going to build it, you know, and world domination and all of that. <laughs> and so, yeah, I started doing some consult consulting for some VCs whose organization, you know, had kind of portfolio companies that needed to help to understand what is product and how do you build a product and how do you hire for product and how do you even think in the way a product person would and bring that into kind of the core DNA and startup from the very beginning. And I just found I really liked it. And I liked the diversity and I liked all the different products I was working with and all the different kinds of people and, and it paid the bills. And so I just kept going from there. Yeah. And your big focus is currently at least on helping product leaders to develop the EQ of their product organizations. And in my research, I discovered that you have discovered, or you're at least suggesting, that often we are too focused on our techniques, our tools, our frameworks, and we're not focused enough on our practicing of the human skills, you know, our emotional awareness, our self-control, our empathy, and things like that. What, yeah. yeah, what was it that made you realize that? You know, where, where was it a certain moment? Were you somewhere? Where there, was there a big yeah. aha moment? Like, tell us a bit about that. There, yeah, it, well, it was a bit of a slow burn and then the aha moment kind of happened. So after doing about, gosh, maybe five or six years of um, consulting, I went, you know, I'd gone from startups to working for big organizations that wanted to do digital transformations and product transformations and all of these transformations to to actually learn how startups were building products because that was, you know, that was the thing at the time. And I kind of got to a point where I was really tired of talking about our product management, you know, traditional techniques and tools like, you know, roadmaps. And at the time MVPs were very big and lean and now OKRs, you know, it's just the same, the same type of questions, the same type of frameworks all the time. And I noticed that a couple minutes into a conversation with a client, you know, well, it might start out with something that's really product focused, like one of these great frameworks, like a few minutes in, it got very personal. You know, they were, there were things like, you know, why doesn't my team like me? Why doesn't my manager like me? How can I get a promotion? It all turned to a much more kind of personal level. And I didn't feel like I was really equipped for a lot of those conversations. So this was back in 2016. So I went and took a, a coaching program 
um, in London. And that kind of opened my eyes to a whole different skill set around coaching, be it personal coaching or career coaching or business coaching, whatever it might be. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I remember coming out of the course, I was sitting in, my, in the front room of my flat in London at the time, and I was looking at lots of blogs and lots of content to see all the stuff that you know I'd missed over the last couple of months when I was taking this coaching course, all the stuff that was out there in the, in the product world. And I realized nobody was talking about you know, the human skill side of things. Nobody was talking about EQ and how important that really is, you know, to anyone. But in product management, I think there's like a special place for it because we do work with so many different types of personalities. And we do have such a broad range of responsibilities and accountabilities. Anyway, so I remember sitting on the floor of my in my front room and started thinking about this idea of uh, product management and emotional intelligence and came up with this term called product EQ and started writing about that and blogging about that and talking about it. And it just kind of went from there. And I have to say, like, at first I was really nervous about it because I wasn't sure how people were going to respond to somebody talking about like self-awareness in your, you know, product management practice. And I, so I tried to kind of back it up with a lot of statistics and figures as to, you know, research shows that people and organizations with higher levels of self-awareness are, you know, have higher profits and higher retention rates and all of this great stuff. But now I'd say over the last couple of years, it's something that has become more of an accepted topic and really happy for that. But that's where it came from, that aha moment sitting in my front room. <laughs> I love it. Why is it that you suspect we do focus overly on the technical aspects, the harder aspects, and we tend to be a bit coy or focus less on those softer skills that are so critical for us actually achieving impact and actually getting our job done in a way that we can be proud of? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think there's a lot of different reasons. I think some of it is, you know, the brain, the way the brain functions, um, it's kind of easier for us to pick up these these more quote unquote technical product management skills. You know, it's something we can learn and it's something we can read about and it's something we can master, right? And it feels good because we've figured it out, you know, and we put it to use. Um, so we keep learning and growing that kind of technical skills muscle. I think it's also, you know, just within our, our, our product world, these are, you know, core things that are part of our vocabulary in product management. You know, we all think everybody's got a roadmap. Everybody's got a horror story about a roadmap. Everybody's got a great story about a roadmap. Everybody's got stories about MVPs and now design sprints and discovery phases and all these things. It's essential. You know, it is really what we do in product management. So I think there's, it's not surprising that we tend to focus a lot on it. And I think also on the other side, on the, the human skills side, emotional intelligence side, we haven't really always had the vocabulary to talk about that comfortably at work. You know, and it hasn't really always been part of how we're incentivized even. You know, we have these, we have career ladders and career frameworks and all of that. And I would say the large part, uh, large parts of our kind of legacy as product people, those have been made up of at this level, you need to be able to master these skills, you know, and the vast majority of those skills are the technical skills, right? 
there's not until lately, I'd say, in a couple of companies that I'm working with are more focused on how do we bring the human skill side into that as well? You know, how do we say, like, it's really important to have self-awareness at any level. And here's how we think it applies to, you know, the different levels of a product organization. So I think I think that's just kind of changed with the times in the last mm. few years. Yeah, I think it's a really positive change. And just thinking about the different skills that are required at different levels of products you know there will be two types of product people listening to this mainly there'll be our product managers and we'll also have some of the product leaders that are tuning in what eq skills are most important for product managers to develop and does the profile of the type of skill or skills that you need change as you take on more responsibility and you become a manager of product managers a product leader yeah, I think that's a really, that's a good question. And whether or not the skills change or whether or not you kind of, uh, I think sometimes the skills change depending on your team, you know, you as an individual, the team you're working in, and the organization overall. Because, you know, one of the examples I often use is conflict resolution or conflict management. Some teams, you're going to need that more than others. Some organizations, you're going to need that skill more than others. So I think it kind of varies depending on the organization you're working with. But I think it's also the emotional intelligence and the human skills are something that you do kind of grow. I'd say those first few years in product management, we are very focused on the technical skills. And it's kind of learning your craft, right? Which is cool. But then the thing that really makes the difference as you go up the ladder, I'd say more are these human skills, you know, more is it's more of the emotional intelligence. It's kind of like that, that great saying, what got you here isn't going to get you there, you know? So what got you to maybe a senior product manager, you know, and mastering these technical skills and getting really good at them is probably not the same skill set that's going to get you from a senior manager to a, a CPO or something like that. So I think they, I don't know if they're specific per level, but it's just more of kind of the evolution of them as you, as you continue to mature as a product person and, and a person, you know, outside of that as well overall. Yeah. I get the sense that it's a, it's a highly situational and contextual skill and capability development that has to go on. And you mentioned coaching earlier, and I would love to come to coaching with you. I actually have a, a couple of interesting side conversations that I've had with previous guests around coaching and its importance in developing those skills that we don't currently have. But I wanted to come back to something yeah. you touched on earlier, which was the somewhat fluffy nature of EQ. And I'm being intentionally yeah. provocative here, right? Like the, the yeah. business culture that we work in. I mean, look, I work in UX and design, right? So if there's anything that's ever been accused of being fluffy, it's being UX and design. So when we bring this yeah. lens of EQ to product, I'm assuming that it's not the first time that someone said something like that to you. How do you go about developing the, the business case? And you mentioned statistics earlier, but how do you actually have that conversation with the organization that, hey, we would really love to bring Kate in or we'd really like to take and apply some of Kate's uh, teachings into our product practice and that's going to mm -hmm. require us to make an investment of time, potentially of money too. How do you have that conversation with mm -hmm. the more hard-nosed business people amongst us? Yeah, it's, it is it is a challenge, but I think it, it's something that it's really kind of one of the main reasons that I, I wrote the book itself. Um, so I wrote a book 
The title is it's hiring product managers using product EQ to go beyond culture and skills. And one of the main reasons I did that was to really kind of operationalize product EQ or emotional intelligence and product management, because I wanted to make a case for where it is applicable in kind of a really important primary thing product people are doing now, which is a lot of hiring. Yes. We, we do a lot of hiring. If you can you find know, the people, right? It used to be very centralized. Yeah, exactly. It used to be very centralized in HR. And now it's really, I think, decentralized and, you know, kind of democratized in a way amongst the teams. So one of the main reasons that I wrote the book was to actually say, like, here's a way that emotional intelligence can really make a big impact on your organization and can help people kind of realize, you know, grow personally and and help the team grow as well. And the organization can have, um, has a massive impact on the organization too. So it's something that it, it's not easy for everyone to understand why investing time in coaching or, you know, focusing on things like empathy or conflict resolution or self-awareness or even collaboration is an important or important things for teams. But I think my my clients, the people that I work with, get it. And so I don't have to do lots of selling anymore, to be honest, around why it's important. Um, it's not not everybody's going to get it. And that's OK. That's that just means they're not my client. And that's completely cool because they'll get it in a couple of years. Something tells me. Um, well, we'll it's, it certainly seems like the, the the tide is changing, doesn't it? And just for people that are listening, yeah. I, I just wondered if you could recall some of those ROI factors uh, related to new hires and sort of the costs of getting it wrong. And if not, that's no no tr- trouble. I've actually got some of those oh, yeah. stats here. Yeah, I remember one specifically is when things don't work out, the cost of turnover is huge, right? So when somebody leaves a job, You've got costs to sometimes there's some kind of a severance package involved or gardening leave or something kind of like that to cover. Then there's the cost of of hiring somebody new, um, which recruiting or maybe you're working with an executive recruiting firm or something like that. And all the interviewing times, you know, all of this stuff involved. And I if I remember correctly, the statistics the statistic that I have in the book is something like it could cost 120 to what was that 200 percent of a person's salary. 100. Um, percent I mean, might have that. I mean, you're 100 percent right. Yeah. yeah. Did I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, this wasn't meant to be a test. 200 percent. 200 percent of a person's salary to cover that turnover cost. Also, one of the things that I found really interesting, a statistic that said, uh, the statistic that from a survey um, after people left um, a job, only 11% of them said they left because they lacked a technical skill, right? So that leaves 89% of respondents saying the reason they left had something, had nothing to do with a technical skill. So, you know, my assumption is that it had a lot to do with a human skill. You know, maybe it was getting feedback from a boss. Maybe it was trying to form a relationship with a stakeholder. You know, who knows what it was, but there is a big space to explore outside of this technical skill as a reason people are leaving. Also, and just that it takes a long time once somebody new does come on board, um, it takes a long time to get people up to speed, you know, and to be kind of working at a good level of efficiency in a new job. I think it's about... Um, the research I quote, I think, is about 13 months. Wow, that's three out of three, Kate. Them. 
that's pretty good. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bang they're on. in my talks, so <laughs> I think I still quote them. So, so I, I get to see, I get to talk about them quite frequently. So it takes a long time. It costs a lot to get new people in the door. It takes them a long time to get up to speed. And the reason they're leaving most likely has nothing to do with the technical skills that we we focus on so much. Yeah, so it's really, really um, important those to get are my, this. my top three. Yeah, it's so important <laughs> to, to get this right. Don't worry, I don't have any more quizzes for you in this, excuse me, okay, in this interview. I understand you have a bit of a story, though, as a freshly minted head of product at Moo. How did you go about approaching yeah. your first hire? My first hire at Moo... I can st I'm still friends with him on Facebook, so I guess that means we're still friends. <laughs> he he was a, a great guy. Um, how did I approach it? I can't remember, to be honest with you. That's, it was that's over all right. a, a I'll jog decade your, ago. I'll jog your memory. I believe that you yeah. spent some time looking at some of the 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 leaders, and I'm using inverted commas here, I suppose they are still technically the leaders, but big tech companies like Amazon and Google and cobbling together a job, right. a job description, right, of all these things that yeah. you could wish someone would have in this role. And you've said in the past, and yeah. I'm just going to quote you now, we've created roles that are impossible for people to fill. What we're actually looking for is a unicorn how has this come to be yes. and how does this negatively affect the way in which we approach that hiring conversation? You know, and I'm going to quote another stat, which is in the book as well. And that's this other, uh, another survey that was done of hiring managers and asking them how important a job description is. Mm. And about 80% of them said, yes, a job description is really important. But about 50% of them also admitted to cutting and pasting together job descriptions. So I know I wasn't alone in what I did that day at Moo and probably many days after that when I was hiring other people. But yeah, we, I, I, and I think the reason is we do, we go online, we want to see what else everybody is saying, you know, number one, because we think it'll save us time, you know, and we can get a job, just tick something off our list of things to do and get it out there. Um, and then start meeting people and then we'll just take it from there and figure it out. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that we do it. And two, I think we're uncomfortable with, we don't really know what needs to go in the job description, right? We haven't really taken the time to figure it out. So when we look around at other things and say like, oh yeah, we, that's right. That totally makes sense. And that one over there, that makes sense as well. So we'll just kind of put it together and put it on our letterhead and, you know, then we're all good. So I think it does happen a lot. And when I talk about it with other people, everybody kind of, you know, not everyone that I talk to, but people get a little like blush and are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. It too. <laughs> you know, we, we, we're all guilty of doing this. Because we have no time, right? Like I we're trying to save time. Right. We we're trying to save time. I think we're, yeah, it's try, we're trying to save time and we don't really know what we're hiring for. So we see other things. We're like, yeah, I need that. And I need that. And it's like a grocery list almost, yeah. you know? Yeah. I believe and, you've, you've got something that you've created to help product leaders to actually figure out who, who they're looking for or what they're looking for. It's called the Role Canvas. Yes. I created um, the Role Canvas and it's really simple. So instead of like sitting down at your laptop and cutting and pasting together a job description. What I've started doing with clients is this canvas where it has four really simple questions. And the first one is what's um, the purpose of the role? So th that's, that's not just the title, right? It goes beyond that. Like what is the actual reason for this role 
roles being? Um, and then what are the accountabilities for the role um, or the outcomes they'll be working towards? And then the human skills, what human skills and what technical skills are essential to actually for this role to achieve the outcomes and, may, and its purpose. Um, so it's just, it's four blocks of space on a, on a canvas that you can get from my website and use with your teams. And it's, it's kind of, it's like any canvas that we use in our world today. It's a conversation starter, right? And once the team starts using this to kind of talk through these questions, you find that there's, you know, a lot of, there would have been a lot of confusion over what really was going into the role unless they sat down and kind of had this exercise and went through the practice itself. So it saves a lot of time and that it saves a lot of confusion down the line. It saves a lot of time to do it this way and that instead of just kind of cutting and pasting and putting together a job description and, and putting it out there, and then you meet people, you have people coming in for interviews and realize, oh no, that's not what I want at all. So it saves you time and it saves the candidate time as well because the idea is, is to really think about it before you create a job description. You know, some of these key facts or key spaces to, to discuss with your team and your stakeholders and your managers and everyone else. And, and you know, by sitting and using and doing these four, these four questions, it seems to kind of get the, the communication going and the conversation going. Yeah, and I've noticed that these frameworks, these canvases, these tools which we're also familiar with on the technical side of product, you have brought forward into the way in which you're trying to help product leaders shape the EQ on human skills within their practice. And I was curious about this because you seem to be, and you haven't stated this, but it's sort of obvious in your work that you see value in people structuring their thinking and actually getting it down on paper, even if it's just to to shape uh, or start a conversation, has this way of structuring thinking of starting conversations through artifacts, has this been something that you have always done or is this something that you have developed in response to the need that you've seen to, to better develop the EQ side of the product practice? I think it's something that it's a coaching technique actually to actually get things down on paper and preferably it's pen and paper or pencil and paper. But, you know, given the virtual world we live in now, it can also be, be done virtually. And that's why I have the canvas as it is, but it's just taking a moment to write something down. Your brain works in a, a different way, you know, and thinks in a slightly different way. It's a bit more reflective experience that comes out of that. So that's why I love creating opportunities for people to actually write things down. And I think that the structured nature of it just helps us kind of focus in on, you know, often if we think about um, a role, you know, and not using cutting and pasting and all that and creating it ourselves or creating it with our team, it seems overwhelming. It's one of those things where it's like, God, I don't, I don't even know where to start. So with the structure, it's just like, let's just go step by step by step by step, you know, and it breaks down something that may seem really overwhelming to some people into, you know, four boxes on a page. And that can seem a bit more digestible, I think. So that's the other reason for it. And it strikes me that just the simple act of going through those four boxes and working that out is actually taking quite a lot of risk 
of wasted time and energy or making the wrong hire for a start out of the process of of finding product people you know it's it's almost like you're mapping out the vision of what you want that role to to be so that when you're sitting in the interview chair you have a better understanding of whether or not the person that's opposite you is going to align with the canvas that you've agreed on is what you're after. Right, exactly. It's a way to start to, you know, you create the conversation with your team and it's a, it's much easier then to kind of move on to let's take the, the bare bones of this and put it into a job description and then move on to actual interviewing and the questions that you're going to ask in interviews and things like that. It's the foundation really of that process. And that's why I, I focused on it so much um, in my blogs and book and, and all of that fun stuff. Well, let's come to interviewing because interviewing is certainly a bit of an art when you're trying to find someone for a job, right? There's a lot of risk. There's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of hurt feelings potentially if things don't go well. it's, It's generally, it's fraught with a few gotchas. You really do also have to create space for a meaningful conversation with people. What are some of the common mistakes that people in product are currently making when they approach that conversation with candidates? Well, I think one of them is, again, that we're just so focused on kind of the, the technical side mm. of, of the job. So we ask a lot about, you know, kind of specific skills or specific tools that you use to, you know, if, be it building out OKRs or creating your MVP or the way your team is working or, you know, it's just... We, we definitely tend to focus more on the technical side. I think, again, it's because we don't know exactly how to bring um, the human skill side or the, or the, um, the EQ side into the conversation. Because it, it's easier, you know, to say, like, to have some good scenario questions for somebody and just ask them about, you know, their last project, what was the project, how did it, you know, how did it go? What were the metrics? How did you smash your metrics, you know, and, and just kind of go and tell a story around that. So I think that's just, I think that's just a, an easier and safer conversation to have. Um, and I think also that we, in product, we tend to ask those brain teaser questions quite a lot. And, you know, <laughs> you know, the kind of like, I, I have a couple in my book and, you know, what has, um, what's going to create more revenue or add revenue, you know, a funeral home or a flower shop or, you know, there's just all these random questions that we ask. And I remember doing this as well, you know, quite a bit when I was at Moo and beyond just to try to kind of, I think going into an interview and asking people these questions made me feel like really smart and cool and, you know, in charge. And I kind of see them squirm and try to figure it out and, it was like a power trip almost. So I'm so glad um, you said that because that's exactly a- that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Most often, it is a power trip. Yeah. Like, what are you really having this interview for? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'd say a lot of times the person asking the question has no idea either. You know, so <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, some organizations, you know definitely use them and find it a worthwhile part of their interview, which is great. But I'd say, I'd say a lot of time we product people are asking them just to kind of, you know, feel kind of cool and feel kind of smart. And I'm not quite sure it's something that really helps us figure out if that person is, is 
somebody who is going to be a great person to join our team. So what kind um, of questions? So yeah, so those or, are some of the mistakes. Yeah, what kind of questions or interview style does lend itself to understanding the whole person, you know, both their technical skills, but also the human skills that we've identified on our role canvas? What are the, yeah, what technique or way can we really understand who they are and whether or not they're going to be a good fit for us? Yeah, I talk a lot about and advocate behavior-based interview questions. Mm -hmm. And they're really simple questions. Like they're not meant to trick you or throw you off or anything like that, but yet they're they're found to be highly, highly valid in terms of finding out about people and finding out about how maybe somebody has behaved in the past in a work situation and how that may impact their behavior in the future. I'll unpack all that because there's there's a lot in there. So questions could be really simple, like for conflict resolution. If you do have a team that has a lot of conflict recently, maybe you want to bring in somebody who has good skills deal, dealing with conflict. So you could ask a really simple question, like how did you react when somebody disagreed with something that you said? You know, what did you say? How did you respond? Um, like something really simple like that. What that will tell you is how they did behave in a very common situation. Like I've had like five people probably disagree with me today already. So it happens all the time. So it's not like a niche occurrence. And it will give you kind of an idea how they maybe behaved in the past. But also it doesn't determine, we need to remember this, the response and how somebody might have behaved in the past, even earlier this morning, doesn't mean they're going to behave the exact same way going forward. However, it gives that person kind of an, that candidate an opportunity to come back and say, like, you know what, this morning when somebody disagreed with me, I called him, you know, I said he was just not a great guy and I don't want to work with him anymore. And I stormed out of the room, but that's not how I want to handle it going forward. I've learned that I'd rather do it X, Y, and Z way and have a conversation with them afterwards. Um, so behavior-based interview questions basically give the candidate an opportunity to tell the story, right? And they give the interviewer the opportunity to find out, to kind of probe and nudge and, and really make something as intangible as conflict resolution tangible, you know, by finding out, like, do they engage with that conversation or with conflict or not? If so, how do they engage? And would they behave the same way they did, you know, the last time that conflict was something that they had to deal with? So it's a different kind of question to give a, an interviewee, the respondent, a chance to kind of share an experience and also say like, but I wouldn't do it that way now. Now I would like to do it this way, you know, um, and to explain the behavior they'd like to have. Yeah. What level of fidelity are you aiming to achieve with that question? You know, how do you know whether or not what, you've, what you're receiving is a, is a good answer? And I don't mean good as in like ticks, ticks the box as in what's in the role canvas, but yeah. how do you know when you've actually gotten under the skin and, 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 and understood that person's behavior? Yeah, I think it's something, it's, it's quite similar to when you're doing a customer interview, you know, and you kind of probe and nudge until you get to a point where you're either like, I'm not going to get any further with this question. I'm not going to find out any more about it. Or, okay, I've gotten to my insight. I've gotten to the response that I need to know which way to go next. So I think it's it's quite similar skill set, you know, in that you're going to follow up and you're going to continue to ask probing questions or why or for more detail. But it is really to kind of keep going until you can make that 
thing that does seem untangible, like, uh, you know, how do I make conflict resolution tangible? But you can just by kind of, it, and the onus really is on the person asking the question to continue to kind of go through the narrative, find the patterns until you're at the point where you're like, yes, let's continue or no, this question isn't going to work with this person and maybe we're going to have to find something else or maybe this isn't the right person for this role. So there's quite a lot actually going on there for the person interviewing. You know, we often think about interviews as the, yes. you know, the hot seat as the interviewee, but it's almost like the the hot seat in this style of interviewing is shared equally between the two. And I'm sure that most of us listening uh, I have myself been in an interview situation where the person doing the interviewing was 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 grilling, you know, was basically grilling me like a, a sausage on a barbecue, but badly, you know, they really were having <laughs> that power trip. What level of EQ or style of EQ does the interviewer need to bring to that conversation to create a space where the interviewee feels safe enough to talk about some things that may not always be 100% flattering? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the interviewer, the onus is a lot on that interviewer to, as we kind of say in coaching, to like hold the space, right? To create like a safe space for a conversation that goes beyond like what are the metrics that you hit last quarter, right? So a lot of it is um, active listening, you know, which of course you've got to, it's your body language and virtually even this is hugely important. It's eye contact, right? It's acknowledgement. It's um, not interrupting. It's, you know, having kind of gentle nudges through the conversation, but not stopping the story before the person's kind of gotten to where they need to or completed it. It's a lot of empathy. And by that, I don't mean exactly like putting yourself in, in the interviewee's shoes, because I don't know if that's really possible for one person to actually put themselves in another person's shoes. But it's to try to form an understanding of where they're coming from um, and the situation that they were in or the situation they're, they're, they're discuss discussing or describing. You know, I think interviewers need a lot of humility, and I don't think we bring that to our interviews a lot because I think we again are trying to come across as like you know I'm the one offering you a job and you know you have to impress me and you know lately that's probably changed a bit of course but I think it's it, it is kind of a it's a presence you know you need to have kind of a, a warm and welcoming and aware and checked in presence to kind of create a, an environment where somebody, especially somebody virtually, you've never met face-to-face, -face, that you may be offering a job to and working together very closely with. And you spoke yeah. about the shift to remote recently. I mean, we, we don't really need to labor the point regarding COVID. We, we have all seen the horrendous impact that has had on many, many people around the world. And it's also really changed the way in which us very privileged people in technology work. You mentioned the yeah. The eye contact that you would otherwise normally have in a physical setting, it's not really possible mm -hmm. in the same way remotely. Can you get an yeah. accurate sense, like you can in person, of the candidate when you're interviewing them remotely? Well, I, I think you can get a pretty good 
a pretty good kind of likeliness of that. I think you can kind of get there. I think we're at a place where it's something that we have to accept that we may not meet somebody face-to-face. And the number of hires, I mean, the number of clients that I have that I've never met face-to-face, it's just kind of shocking, right? But there is a way to kind of bridge this gap even virtually. And I think we can still give that impression body language wise, even, even though we're not in the same room, you know, I've, my, my biggest, one of my biggest bugbears is clients who would just sit there on their computer the whole time, even though we're having a conversation, you know, virtually. And it's just like, do they not know that I can see that they're not paying attention? You know? Um, it's rude, so right? There are it's, still not, things, it's not fun. Yeah, it's it's yeah. really rude, yeah. right? It, but you remember, it, do you remember when we used to sit in conference rooms and there used to be those people that would sit there and do that, mm. right? <laughs> like, I know you're here, I know you're speaking, but I got a lot to do and I'm very important. So yeah. I'm just going to get my work done. So I think there is still there are still things we can do to try to make our presence known. And I, I think even virtually, it's extremely possible to kind of get to know somebody in a very different way. You know, look at this conversation. You're seeing the inside of my house, mm-hmm. yes. right? Yep. That's something that you probably wouldn't have, have seen otherwise. So it's a different perspective, but I still think it's a telling perspective. And definitely body language virtually is still, it's still in play, I'd say. Speaking about those people who sit in conference rooms and work while everyone else is trying to have a conversation. Self-awareness is something that you have written a lot about and is a key attribute, I suppose, to successful people in general, but definitely product leaders or managers who have to interact with others on a daily basis. And one of your articles I was reading, I learned that there was some research from the Hay Group I'm just referring to my notes here. They conducted some worldwide research with 17,000 people and found that, and this is quite funny, 95% of people think that they are self-aware, but the actual percentage is far, far lower. What is that? Yeah. What's that rough actual percentage of people who are self-aware? I can't remember the number, but if you go on in that article, I think there's from that same survey from the Hay Group again, there was also, they broke it down by gender into men and women, right? And yeah, a a lot of guys thought they were self-aware compared to women who responded to that question. And the vast majority of men had it wrong. <laughs> yeah, like I've got those stats here. Cr- Do you want me to share share that with yeah. you? Yeah, okay. So Yeah, yeah, share that, so, will you? So overall, it's 10 to 15% of people, not 95%, who are actually self-aware. And right. you're 100% right. Uh, that Hay Group survey found that 19% of female executives were self-aware compared to, uh-huh. and this is shocking, 4% of men. Yeah. So what is it about men? If you're willing to go there, that makes us so pitifully lacking in self-awareness. I don't know if I'm going to, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to go there, but I, (laughs) I do think it's interesting. The comparison that I see in my magic find is that um, when we go back to thinking about interviewing and applying for jobs, there's also a lot of research that shows that men will apply for a job, a job, even if the job description, they don't really match the job description right? Even if maybe they take a couple of the boxes on the must-haves, but that's a, that's about it. Whereas women will hold off from applying to a job unless they feel like they've really hit the vast majority of the things on, on, 
um, that job description. So, you know, I think it's that women might, we hold back a little bit and like, I'm not going to say I'm self-aware unless I really think I'm self-aware, <laughs> you know, whereas guys might be willing to just kind of blag it a bit. I don't know. I'm not a guy. So it's hard for me to say. And I know a lot of good guys who are very self-aware, but not everyone. Yeah, it would appear not everyone. And this is really important not when everyone. it comes to the performance of organizations as well. Like I was always also reading in one of the references in your article that the Corn Ferry Institute created a study called A Better Return on Self-Awareness. And they looked at 486 publicly traded companies over a 30-month period. And they attributed higher levels of self-awareness to higher rates of return. And poor performing companies had employees that were 79% more likely to have overall self uh, uh, overall lack of self-awareness compared to the higher yeah. performers. So this is like, this is actually one of those key human skills that can greatly have an impact on just how well your company does, isn't it? Yeah. And there's also research on an individual basis mm. that shows that people with higher levels of EQ tend to make more money <laughs> than people with lower levels of EQ in a similar role. I can like, almost hear people's interest data- peak up just on that note. Yeah, exactly. And the data point was pretty specific. It said on average around $29,000 a year. And that was a few years ago. So I can imagine it's grown. So yeah, I mean, and it is interesting because I I put a lot of those hard facts into my earlier articles because I was trying to convince people that like, look, it's not just fluff. There's something really there. I still hold true on that. You know, I still put all, all of those data points in my talks because it's something that for those people that are a bit more challenged on just accepting like this is this makes sense we need to focus on this kind of thing in our in our workplace it starts to kind of break things down and kind of um, you know open them up to exploring it a bit more because the numbers are are pretty convincing you also have used story as a way of trying to compel people to pay attention to these issues particular in particular self awareness you had a an article, that, and this was one that I'll link to in the show notes. It's called, What the Heck is Self-Awareness and Why mm-hmm. Should You Care? And there was a quote in there, which I'll read yeah. now, and it was, the biggest opportunity for improvement in business at home and in life is awareness. And the person who said that was Alan Mullally, who's the former CEO of Ford Motor Company. And he is, I suppose, largely attributed with the turnaround of Ford Motor Co. from 17 billion US dollar losses to 20 billion US dollar mm-hmm. profits. It's also the only motor company that didn't take a federal bailout during the 2008 global financial crisis. What was mm-hmm. it that he attributed most of the success of that turnaround effort to? Yeah, he attributed it to self-awareness, mm. really. And it was something, it was a skill that he talked about that he found hugely important years before, earlier in his career, he worked at Boeing. And because of the incident with somebody who reported to him, he kind of realized that he was missing a lot of, a lot of this thing of, called self-awareness. And, you know, since then had really become kind of a student of it and tried to bring it into um, the executive offices and the organizations that he'd been working in. And so, yeah, when he got to Ford and he actually, and he took that, that really tough job, um, he said the moment that he knew things were going to turn around is when members of his executive team in a meeting really started being honest 
you know, about what was happening. And he said it took a long time for people to have the awareness to be able to do that. But once they did, that was that was their moment. So, yeah. So it was he's big, big advocate of self-awareness as a leading skill for any business person. Yeah. And particularly when it comes to executives, they're often used to people telling them what those people think they want to hear. And it's such a creator of blind spots, right? And when you're in a crisis situation, the last thing that you want is for people to be feeding you information about what is actually going on that is not reflective of reality. So it's so critical to foster that that culture of self-awareness and safety that people are able to share like, like that with you. Now I'm asking for a friend here. Yeah. But if you're not particularly self-aware, right? how can you become more self-aware? Uh, well, baby steps, right? It's all about baby steps. So I think a great way to start to build self-awareness is through self-reflection. And there's so many different things that you can do around that, you know, and doing some journaling um, every day, you know, and what do you want to work on during the day? How did it go? What went well? What didn't go well? Like basic things like that. Um, In the book, I even give examples of how you can do self-reflections around hiring. You know, after you interview someone, do a self-reflection, you know, not only did they answer the questions well, but what was, what was it about the person that you think would be a, a, you know, a good person to bring into your team. And that can also help you start to kind of bring hopefully some, at some point, break down some of those biases that we have um, that can often come into hiring processes and interviewing as well. So self-reflection or self-awareness, I think is a good baby step. It's not even a baby step, but a good step is really just taking some time to do some self-reflection. And you can find different ways of doing that throughout your day. Um, One of the things I used to do, I remember when I worked at Moo, and I was trying to figure out why things would bug me so much, is I would, every product person has post-its of every color about, right? And when I would get really frustrated or something, and I wasn't quite sure why I was frustrated, or, you know, I just think it was a certain person or something like that, not really have the self-awareness to really figure out what was going on. I would take my post-it and I'd take a pen and I'd write down a word, like whatever word came to mind. Often it was CTO. (laughs) So I'd write that down (laughs) and put it on my desk. (laughs) And, um, And it became like my, and sometimes I'd put a date or a time on it or something like that. And that became my automatic first step at, at kind of journaling and self-reflection. So instead of it just like sitting in here and just brewing, I'd be like, you know, somebody's getting another post-it today and it would just go on my desk. <laughs> and then, at, you know, whenever I was ready, whenever I had the time, I could pick that up and take it with me, take it home maybe and on the commute. I'd do a little journaling or a little writing about what was really going on. But it just was that first, it was that first like reaction, knee-jerk reaction. Instead of getting mad, instead of getting really frustrated and keeping it in my head, it was, you know, pen and paper, write it, write something down, even just a word, and then go on with my day. Um, so little things like that. It's a like cathartic that. practice, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, I was curious about this because obviously if you write about this and you coach and this is a big part of your professional focus, you have your own practices here. What has surprised you about yourself 
since you actively started trying to improve your self-awareness, you know, have you discovered any blind spots that you were previously (laughs) unaware of? Like what have you learned? I have learned so much, like, and I'm still learning every day. This journey, like, will never end. It's kind of like a feature, you know, what is done? (laughs) It's it's never really done. The product's never done. So what have I learned about self-awareness? Or what have I learned about myself as I've been going through this? Yourself, Um, yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to think what's safe to say on a podcast. Um, (laughs) I've learned... I learned I do get frustrated, or, or I, I did, I'm still working on it, get frustrated quite easily. And so doing things that would break that, that train of thought were helpful. Um, imposter syndrome, hugely, you know, it's, I do a lot of writing and talking about that as well. And figuring out what are the limiting beliefs I have in my mind that are holding me back from maybe doing really good or, you know, helping move myself ahead. I've learned to like, to, in a this might sound kind of weird, but like get more in touch with getting more in touch with my body and into my body makes a big difference. So there's a big part of coaching called body work, you know, and then sometimes it's just movement. It's getting people up out of our chairs and moving or shaking off something that's bothering us. And that small things like that can help me kind of figure out where I am um, and bring back kind of a balanced level of self-awareness it's also made me realize how important like health is, you know, and if something's not going well for me in my mind, something most likely won't go well for me in my body as a result of that, you know, being at something simple as like shoulders are really tight or my neck is all messed up to, you know, bigger health situations. So in my mind, self-awareness is kind of like, it's like the meta skill, right? And if we can start to learn that and, create it in our life and whatever it is, if it's just, you know, if it's a post-it note or if it's, you know, learning some body techniques to get up out of your chair and shake off whatever just happened, then I think it's definitely a worthwhile investment. Get, I get the sense that there, from what you've described as some of some of those techniques, whether it's writing the post-it note or being more conscious of your, your body, whether that's through movement or I think one technique that I've used in the past through a coach that I had was just to pay attention to where my body was touching other surfaces mm-hmm. to ground me back in into yes. the, the moment because we spend a lot of our time up here in our head and not a lot of yeah. our time down in our body. I get the sense that the physicality, whether it's, like I said, writing or whether it's paying attention to your body is quite important in, in fostering self-awareness in the moment. Yeah. Well, for me, it definitely is. Um, I did a, a an executive coaching intensive program recently through Berkeley in California. And one of the tutors, well, they were all very, very big on, on body work and how that can help you get out of your mind and become more present at work in a conversation in an interview, whatever it might be. And just some basic techniques like getting up or, you know, shaking a leg or shaking an arm, or if you want to, you know, you can try Tai Chi or Qi Kong, or um, I have this great book that I got out of that program. It's called Physical Intelligence and it's sitting on my desk. So that's something I'm reading um, and learning more about, but yeah, these, these small things can have a huge impact on breaking the train of thought, negative thoughts often um, to bring us back to a, a better place. 
Well, Kate, seeing as you were brave then and shared some of your journey with self-awareness, I thought it would only be fair if I shared with you some of mine. And one of my biggest failings as a leader has been to apply my personal standards of performance to other people and Mm. then share my unfiltered frustration with them about the outcomes when those standards, some of which were impossible to meet, were not achieved. Mm -hmm. And when I was reflecting on this, it strikes me as, well, A, it's a huge blind spot in terms of self-awareness of my understanding of the situation of other people, of processing my own emotions, but also resulted in a huge lack of empathy. Yeah. How can product leaders or people that are in the privileged position of taking care of other people in a team avoid setting up impossible situations like I have done in the past with their direct reports? I think it's really hard. I mean, this is, and that's something I don't think you can do on your own. And this is where coaching or, you know, if it's a peer coach, you know, if it's a friend and you guys are coaching each other, that's great. It doesn't have to be somebody that you pay money to, but just that you have someone to, who, who can be that sounding board, who can pick up on these things and can give you that feedback or can help you discover it for yourself as well. I think it's, I think that's something that's hard to pick up on, on your own. I think it's really challenging, you know, even journaling and doing all these great self-reflection exercises without getting that feedback from your team members, even, you know, if they're seeing it and giving you the feedback um, would be really helpful. But otherwise, I think that's where it's just, it's great to get somebody else's perspective and opinion and somebody who for, as a coach, it's, you know, kind of being your mirror and playing back to you what they're seeing and what your actions are and what your behaviors are. So yeah, I think it's a challenge to pick that one up on your own though. I've also, I've got one other tip maybe to share with people listening. If they suspect that they might be lacking in self-awareness, you can also look at the retention of your team. And if you're noticing that people aren't staying very long to work with you, you might have something that working with a coach would help you to make, make a little bit better for the people around you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that you're going to pick up on and see, you know, your lack of self-awareness and other emotional intelligence com- um, skills in, in retention levels, right? And as a leader, you know, a lot of times product people don't have direct reports, right? So we're, we're using influence hugely. And that's, that's a big skill and that's a hard skill to, to really master and to understand. So, but we, our career, our work, a lot of ways relies on it. So if we're, if we don't have that ability to bring those challenging stakeholders on board with us or colleagues or whoever it is, then that's another sign perhaps that, you know, that skill could use some help. So there's, there's just so many different directions to dive into. (laughs) Yeah. You really do have to be paying attention in order to pick these things up. I just want to come back to briefly, I'm just being mindful of time also, so I'll bring this down to a close shortly. About, I want to bring us back to coaching. You know, I had a great conversation earlier in the year with someone who has written a blurb for your book, and I believe you know Marty Kagan. And Marty was telling me about his early career at HP and the importance that was baked into the way that HP did business of coaching. You know, he had a coach when he was an engineer and then when he started to get interested in product, 
he still had that coach that was coaching him on engineering. And then he also was, was able to find someone who would coach him on product management. And he attributes that to, as to, to one of the keys to success of those stellar companies, but also to his mm-hmm. own personal success. Why do we refuse in most companies outside of a privileged few to yeah. invest in coaching and its close cousin mentoring of mm. talent? Why do we refuse to do this? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think a lot of companies are getting better at it because more and more, I'm getting more and more requests and outreach for coaching from organizations. I, I think I think the reason some organizations don't look at it as like something that's a must have is the same reason individuals don't in some cases, because they don't want to be, to feel like, I, th- I think traditionally coaching has seen like it's something for people that aren't doing a good job, right? And I think the mentality in that has changed dramatically over the last few years from something that is kind of, I'm not doing great at my job, therefore I need a coach to instead, we kind of you know spun it on its head. And now it's like, if I want to be a super performer, how lucky could I be to get a coach to help me? Right. So it's now a positive versus a negative, but not everybody's there yet. Not everybody sees it that way. So I think that's one reason. Also, it's hard to actually come up with an ROI for coaching. Right. You know, well, we could try to draw these ties um, to like, you know, people aren't leaving. You've got better attendance rates, be it virtually or, you know, or not. Stress levels are down. Team happiness is up. All of these things. It's hard to say that's you to tie that specifically to coaching. And some organizations are still working that way. If there's no direct ROI, ROI, they're going to have a hard time getting budget for it. So I think all these things are changing, but not everybody sees it as a must-have quite yet. Yeah, unfortunately, not many accountants and finance people are visionary. They know the, yeah. the cost of a lot of things, but often find it difficult to see the value and the intangible and often yeah. are motivated by short-term incentives. Totally. Well, I think another thing that's really hard about coaching is even within product, we have so many different kinds of coaches, right? Like you could have um, design sprint coaches or OKR coaches or um, discovery sprint, sprint coaches, or you could have product coaches that are more on the technical side, you know? And then you have you know, me and maybe a subset that are more interested in leadership coaching or focusing on those kind of skills that are more human skill side. So I think also there's just such a wide variety of how it's just vague, you know, <laughs> what is a coach and how can a coach help you? Um, I think is something we're all kind of working through. And what's the difference between coach and mentor? You know, that's another big thing as well. A lot of people that I've had initial conversations with about coaching, do think of a coach as a mentor. In my mind, a mentor is somebody who's going to, you know, kind of give you that advice that you might be looking for based on their personal experience. Whereas a coach is somebody who's going to more help you figure it out for yourself, right? By playing back or helping you see the patterns in your behavior and things like that. So, and a lot of coaches, you know, we kind of cross over, you know? You might even stick in some advisor in there as well. But I think product people were, were trying to figure out what is a coach, what, it, what, is a, what is a coach, and then what do I really need from a coach 
before you start a coaching relationship. I think that's hugely important. And I think a lot of organizations don't quite have that figured out either. So there's just, there's still going to be a lot of evolution, I think, as to how can coaching help product people um, and help product organizations and help them see that it's just kind of a no brainer. I really like what you suggested there about if you are thinking about a coach, getting clear on what it is or the reason why or the reasons why you want that coach. And I, th I get the sense that that would be remarkably helpful in having a conversation with whoever you need to, to unlock some budget to make that happen if you're really clear yeah. on what the outcomes that you're seeking are. Kate, just in closing, you touched on imposter syndrome and mm. struggling with that and becoming self-aware of that just a little earlier. And that is something that I wanted to ask you about, you know, that sort of mm -hmm. nagging self-doubt that pretty much all humans have, and mm -hmm. there will be a few caveats there. Now, I understand you went to a Catholic grade school. Yes. Who was Sister Esther and <laughs> what was her impact on your life? Sister Esther was my, I think she was a seventh and eighth grade teacher at my Catholic school in Iowa. And she was lovely in many, many ways, but she became um, my kind of um, devil on my shoulder. You know, the person with that would kind of speak to me and say, like, I can't do something. She became a symbol of that. I'm sure she didn't intend to, but for some reason, that's how she kind of got built into the story in my brain as, no, you can't do something um, it's not, maybe it's not right, or you're not smart enough or, you know, whatever it might be, you don't have enough money. You don't have the right background. You don't have the right education. So sister Esther became, became that to me. And when I did a coaching program in London, a few years back, they had us, we were talking about limiting beliefs in relation to imposter syndrome. And they had me, had us all draw out you know, who was our character that kind of symbolized all this. And some people made it up entirely and it was a monster, you know, um, like the monster under the bed. But for me, it was Sister Esther. <laughs> so if you look on a blog, on my blog, on my website, and um, the article about, one of the articles about self-awareness, or I'm sorry, imposter syndrome, um, you'll see my very bad drawing of Sister Esther and all the things that I associate with her. Yeah. And Kate, I suspect that many of us have our own version of Sister Esther. For the people that are listening today that have that devil on their shoulder lurking somewhere in the back of their brain that comes out and does a disservice to them when it really is a critical moment or an opportunity for them to develop themselves, what's your message for them? Oh, you know what? I, it is, it's such a human condition having that limiting belief and having imposter syndrome. I think in, in the article, I quote a stat that says 80% of us say we have imposter syndrome. And, you know, then my, my next question is like, yeah, but what about that other 20%? Are they really, are they really being honest? <laughs> they have a discreet lack of self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like what's really going on there? So I think it's just something, it, it's something that everybody I know has, you know, it is a human condition and, it doesn't have to hold us back. So I think that is part of um, the skill that we can build up, you know, through self-awareness and understanding what these limiting beliefs are and how maybe it's stopping me from having a job that I really like 
or how maybe it's stopping me from going to the next um, level in my career or deciding that the career isn't right for me at all and I should join the great resignation. You know, these are all limiting beliefs that we have in our head. So it's a great opportunity to take a step back and study them, understand them, you know, find your own sister, Esther, and, and learn to make peace with them one by one by one. I certainly wouldn't be here as a consultant 10, 11 years on if I hadn't been able to do that. So Great place and great message to finish this episode on. Kate, thank you. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. You've given me and I'm sure all the people that are listening to today's episode plenty to think about. So thank you for so generously sharing your stories and your expertise with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Brendan. You're most welcome. And Kate, if people want to follow you, your writings, get a copy of your book, just generally connect, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, My website is katelito.com and it has all of that information. My Twitter is at Kleto, just the letter K, L-E-T-O. The book is on Amazon um, all over the world. So please go check that out. And if you enjoy it, which I hope you do, please write a nice review. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Thanks, Kate. And to Thank everyone you. that's tuned in, you're most welcome. It's been great having you here as well. Everything we've covered, including where you can find Kate, and her wonderful book and her on Twitter and all the other great things that we've spoken about today will be in the show notes on YouTube and also on the podcasting platforms. If you have enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave the podcast a review, subscribe, and also pass the podcast along to someone else in your product UX or design community that you feel would get value from these conversations. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn under Brendan Jarvis. There's also a link to my profile on the show notes on YouTube, or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!